Well, now a bill that lowers the voting age for local government elections from 18 to 16 passed its first reading in Parliament yesterday evening. Make it 16 will be pushing to change the bill so the voting age is lowered in time for the 2025 local elections, not the currently scheduled 2028 elections. It comes after years of sustained pressure from some youth. Now, make it 16 shortly, but Taxpayers Union have done an ad campaign. They're not into it. With us is Taxpayers Union Connor Malloy. Kia ora, Connor. Good afternoon. You have to concede that it's pretty impressive how far Make It 16 have been able to take this issue. Yeah, it's a, it's a commendable effort, and I think they're, uh, they're putting forward a, a compelling case, uh, you know, pushing for their, their argument and their cause. Um, the Taxpayers Union doesn't take a position on whether or not the voting age should be lowered. Our position is simply... Um, that uh, it should be put to a referendum of the people and that uh, people should decide, uh, not politicians, when it comes to uh, important uh, constitutional rules and uh, constitutional settings. But isn't this an issue at the core of democracy and democracies internationally? And that means parliament, doesn't it? Not a referendum. Um, Well, if you look at uh, a lot of our other um, constitutional uh, uh, norms in terms of uh, the term of parliament, uh, we would expect that to be set uh, via a referendum if they wanted to change that. Um, in terms of uh, you know the voting age, it's an arbitrary line. There's always going to be some disagreement around where it can be, um, but we think that uh, in setting you know what age it's going to be at, we think that it's uh, fair that, that if there's going to be a change, it should be done via a referendum. By the people, Julie, what do you think? Well, by the people that um, are over the age of 18. So what about the 16-year-olds? They won't be able to vote in a referendum, um, which is something that's going to impact on them. So is, Julie, I, is Julie right, Connor? Um, well, I, I think generally how referendums work is that those who are currently franchised are the ones uh, who vote in it. And so, oh, so uh, they you know, can't. Yeah, if we were, if we were, for example, say, uh, voting, deciding whether or not to give uh, non-permanent residents the right to vote, we wouldn't expect uh, those non-permanent residents to vote in that. It's a decision for those that are currently uh, franchised. I would point out uh, that, you know, the age one is very unique to a lot of other historical um, forms of dis- disenfranchisement because it's not an immutable characteristic. It changes over time and everyone will eventually get there. Okay, so, Nick. Uh, it's, it's something that everyone does have the opportunity to do, and it's not, uh, you know, in and of itself uh, discriminatory yeah, in a way that someone can change. What about you, Nick? Well, I mean, if Parliament decides, of course, Parliament's been only been elected by people who are over 18 as well, so we have an imperfect... Um, situation here. Um, look, I was elected to public office actually at age 19, so I've got you know um, some history and some views on on you know the participation of young people in democracy. Uh, and I, of course, I think probably everybody agrees that we want to lift that, and we should you know we should do that uh, you know using every sort of reasonable means. I do think though, uh, voting is one aspect. The other, actually, is just instilling citizenship and participation in people through our education system and our community is is at the heart of this. Um, because, you know, I have to say, you know, middle-class kids like me, no problem. 
uh, you know, the people that are running this campaign, same thing. Educated people, great. But what are you whole, trying to say? Well, there's a whole, there's a whole group of people out there who will not vote if their voting age is, is 16. And they are the people that are already, um, you know, disenfranchised from democracy. that's just like voting anyway, isn't it? Well, yes, but that's what we should be trying to okay. – that should be is what we should be trying to Connor, change. I appreciate your time. That's Conor Malloy from the Taxpayers Unit. And listen to that was Sage Garrett from Make It 16. Uh, what do you make of Connor's uh, assertion that actually this is better done by referendum, Sage? Oh, well, you know, so uh, following our declaration of inconsistency from the Supreme Court, which showed that this was a human rights violation, uh, it's really not fair that people who are who have that right already um, given to them, so people over the age of 18, to be able to vote on the human rights of people that won't be able to even be involved in that decision-making. Uh, this is a human rights issue, and human rights can't be a popularity contest. Some of the arguments have been well-trodden now, haven't they? I mean, many are still aren't convinced uh, and saying the likes of what Nick's saying here, that actually civics education in schools would be far more suitable rather than having 16-year-old minds to vote. Yeah, and civics education is is, uh, really important and we're definitely uh, hoping for that to be instilled more and more. But lowering the voting age must be treated as a catalyst for that change. It will be much more impactful to students if they're able to have that knowledge come in and then immediately be able to use it to vote uh, at, at 16 and 17. Nick. I'm interested to know, um, the, in terms of the declaration you've had, was that for voting in central and local government or just local government? Yeah, so that's for... Uh, that inconsistent oopsie was between the Bill of Rights and the General and Local Electoral Act. At the moment, we're uh, particularly fighting to have it changed at local elections because we have the support to do that already, and also because in other countries we've seen local elections, uh, having a voting age of 16 has opened up a window of opportunity for people to see just how successful it is when 16, 17-year-olds are able to vote. And what's the experience with turnout in that 16 to 18 age group and, and other countries that have done this? Yeah, so overseas we've seen that 16, 17-year-olds vote at a higher rate than their slightly older counterparts of 18 to 25. And also we know that when the, the younger that, that habit of voting is entrenched into people, the more likely they are to become lifelong voters. Absolutely. So what we're doing is not only opening up this window of more people to be able to vote, we're creating a new generation of lifelong voters. Okay, Julie Woods? Well, I, I still say if you're old enough to have sex, you're old enough to vote, um, and that, that's my argument. I remember sitting down with my 18-year-old Sage when he first voted in the local body elections, and he went through the pamphlet and went, ah, no, 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 too, too old and chubby, um, moved on, and it was kind of a, an interesting process that he went through. And ter- I was horrified. Welcome to but- democracy. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've since learned that actually me sitting down with him and going through the voting, you know, did create that lifelong habit. So um, what do you think 16-year-old thinking will bring to, to democracy, Sage? I'd say that 16, 17-year-olds are just incredibly, like, uh, capable and willing to vote and have uh, their perspective that you can only have by being a part of our age group. Every age group brings their own opinion and their own perspective and we have such 
a worthy one. We're so worthy of the vote, and more importantly, we have a right to the vote. Good to have you on, uh, Sage. Thank you. That's Sage Garrett there from Make It Safe. And before that, we had Connor Malloy from the Taxpayers uh, Union who said this should be done by a referendum. What do you think? Text me, 2101. Is it better uh, lowering the voting age, better by referendum or going uh, this way? Uh, excuse me, please, listen to this. I hitchhiked to Dunedin to see Roy Orbison. On February the 3rd, 1965, it was a great, great show with the Rolling Stones as the warm-up act. Oh, (laughs) You see, what what a fascinating bit of history. You know, that's just amazing. Having part of that as your personal memory. Yeah. Oh, I just hitchhiked to see the Rolling Stones. And by the way, Roy Orbison. But it's New Zealand history too. Yeah. Yeah. To this, many people don't get released on bail because they don't have... A suitable address. So they go to prison to wait till the next court case. A first of its kind bail accommodation opened in Hamilton last week where Pacifica and Māori men can go on bail. It is staffed 24-7. We thought, ah, it'd be good to highlight this a bit with us is Sams Masame, the operations manager at Pivot Bail Accommodation. Sams, kia ora. Great to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Talofa, Sams. One weekend, Sams. How is it going? Oh, well, it's, it's still early days. Uh, we've still got a lot there. It's been the, the, the well received. We've got a lot of good support. So, still interviewing men just to make sure that they fit the criteria of how we can accommodate them and support them when they're in our care. And I understand this is really based on the Polynesian principle, Psalms, uh, of of it takes a village. Is that right? Kind of a formal fale model of health. Yeah, basically, yeah. So when we say, yeah, so it means it does. It's the support of the family and the village. And when we say village, we're talking about our support services, you know, within the community. Really interesting. We've got a panel with us, Sams. They might sort of uh, jump in with a uh, question. Julie. Uh, Talofa Lava, Sams. Um, congratulations on this in- this initiative. What um, did you see happening that you didn't like? Well, what we saw was like, um, so first of all, I speak on behalf of, of my, my team. So Caelan, who's actually the, the director, and his background was with police and bail in the courts. And it was him who saw that there was a, a gap there, like a lot of the, a lot of our, our men were just getting put back into remand, back into the system, yeah. just because they didn't have any uh, approved accommodation to go to. So he approached me, you know, and, uh, and also with his father and mother. They said, well, you know, he's identified this gap where a lot of the boys are just in, they're just stalemate inside, and uh, and it's an opportunity if maybe if we can go in and support them, provide that accommodation for them and get them out of there. Yeah, what sounds, we've got a, uh, yeah, very cool. Uh, Nick Leggett. Marlo Sams. Um, I'm interested to know, um, like, how do you, what are the things you've set up in your mind or in, in your sort of plan that say, you know, in six months' time, we're going to know this as a success? What are your sort of, what are the sort of key indicators for, for you? So a lot of the key indicators that they, um, so when they're in our care, they go through the modules that we've, we've set up 
and so they go through programs, so they're not sitting in idle. Um, as part of the criteria for them to come to a, the accommodation is that they must partake in these programs. Um, so a lot of the, the one of the programs that we've created is called Tautua, and that module is based on service. Uh, it's a service on not just talk but of actions, and it actually makes the women, the men, sort of reflect a lot on what they're doing and where they were and where they want to end up. So that's the beginning. It's a beginning sort of strategy that gets the men just to, to evaluate their positions. That's that's great, and and I assume yeah. this will be this will probably be the most support some of these people have had um, since they've entered the system. It sounds like it, yeah. yeah. It sounds like yeah. Well, well Remands are a real grey area. It seems to be a, right. an, an untouched area where they, they don't have access to programs. You know, while they're in there and. It's a real grey area with the you know, corrections and the courts because, yeah, I mean, just sit there and you know, they don't get that support. And it's just a reminder, isn't it, uh, Psalms, that you know when you get out of prison, it's just some of those things that we in the wider public might not think about, like just that the simple basics like having uh, an approved safe place to go and mm. uh, reside, really fundamental stuff, isn't it? Oh, yes, yeah, it's important. Um, so it's not just a safe place, but a, a place where they can, they really need to sort of have to take a look at themselves and start oh, making plans, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. And it's not making plans just to try and see if they can get off scot-free, but um, quite possible that some of these guys will actually end up doing time. So when they're in our care, they can actually get their affairs in order and, uh, you know, make some money for their families, get them, you know, to work. Understood. So they can still, you know, in that small amount of time, you know, we, we're given the opportunity to work with them, so it sets a bit of a foundation. So when they do come out, they can come back to us and like, hey, you know, we did this. We started here. You know, maybe we can finish off and keep going. Good on your Psalms. We'll keep in touch with how you're going at the Pivot Bale accommodation there in Hamilton. But for now, um, very good to have you here. Thank you. That's Sam Masama, uh, the operations manager at Pivot Bale Accommodation. Uh, it was uh, the, the idea stemmed from one Caleb Chan Boone, who was uh, a former New Zealand police officer who worked as an authorised officer in the courts, saw the issues firsthand and set up this uh, accommodation system. Very cool. We'll see how it works out. It's eight away from five. The panel we have, Julie Woods and Nick Leggett this afternoon. And finally on... What's been a very busy show. Back in the old days, roaming the neighbourhood and playing out on the streets. Well, hopefully not just the old days. A new Waka Kotahi community initiative called Reshaping Streets is trying to get kids and parents back out on the streets. Auckland Council are on board with us as Jacqueline Collins from Auckland Council. Who is the Auckland Council Play Advocacy Advisor? Kia ora, Jacqueline. Kia ora, Wallace, how are you? Very well. We've already had quite a few uh, responses coming through saying, oh, I can recall my idyllic 70, 70s childhood, yeah. you know, playing, <laughs> playing kids' tag, football cycling, all on the road, all on the pavement, lucky us. And here we yeah. have you, team, <laughs> trying to bring it back. Yeah, that's pretty much the size of it. I mean, I am one of those products of the 1970s and 1980s childhood where playing was just go outside and play. Um, but, you know, we just don't live in that world no. that it's quite so easy anymore. Not so much because of kind of strangers lurking on every corner and things like that, but just, I think, primarily because there are a lot of cars mm. on our streets now. And it was a much um, 
quieter roadscape, I think, when I was growing up. Um, so it's, this work from Waka Kotahi is really exciting because it's part of this bigger push to think about how can we regain that right for children to view the entire town or city they live in as a playful space rather than just thinking that play should only happen in playgrounds. What do you think, Julie? Well, I'm thinking back to my childhood, Wallace, and Marshall Street, uh, Bradford, Dunedin, when oh, I yeah. used to go down the trolley, uh, on the trolley. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. It's like, whoa, that doesn't happen Dangerous, nowadays. Julie. Oh, no. <laughs> I did have to, um, I did smile a little bit and think about the the hilly streets of Dunedin because our quietest local street is Cargill Street. And, and I was thinking about that being blocked off and us having activities there, uh, you know, which would probably be like a Jaffa race or something. Everything would be going downhill. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Great memories. Stay there, uh, Jackie. Got, we've got Nick here. I, I really like the sound of this and uh, like you know we, we just we, we've lost this and you only reclaim it when you do you know when you do it consciously and so you know it's not going to be every street but it's about <laughs> having places where i think you know streets where kids can go and play and i think about all the cul-de-sacs where we live and you know i think god it'd be really nice if they weren't chocker with cars like like they wouldn't have been 20 years ago and i also think you know we're lucky we live close to a railway station and a our kids' school, but what's my what was my great nervousness in, in, in letting them walk was the fact that they had to cross a road uh, and all the cars, you know. And I don't think my parents, growing up in the same area, would have had the same concerns about me, you know, twenty thirty years ago. And so we have lost something, and I think you should be congratulated for trying to reclaim it. Okay, practically, uh, how does this work? Do you, do, do you, as a street, you want to get together, have a street party, and say to the council, we want two hours of our time back? Yeah, it's not far off, let's be honest. And Nick is absolutely hitting the nail on the head that one of the great um, unexpected silver linings of the urban plan that's given us so many cul-de-sacs, which aren't always regarded as such a great outcome for urban planning, but they do provide us now with loads of opportunities to have play streets because they're not through roads, so the traffic levels mm-hmm. are going to be lower. So the way that it has worked in the past has been if you wanted to close any street temporarily or restrict traffic temporarily for any purpose, there was actually a real process involved. Um, And the process didn't really vary whether it was a cul-de-sac or whether it was Queen Street for the Christmas parade. You still had to get like an event permit and a big traffic management report. So what Waka Kotahi did in 2021, or 2020, and we ran our pilot in 2021, was to offer opportunities to different councils to try um, what they described as tactical urbanism, which is basically trying out new ways to make streets more people-friendly. And so we applied for funding to test the Play Streets concept. And that was kind of what we tested was, could we make a more simplified application process that would make it really easy for streets of residents to kind of bang together and say, actually, yeah, this is something we'd like to try. And there's three or four families living on the street who would be keen to take on the responsibility of it. Um, and so we had a really successful pilot. So what we're now doing is council and Auckland Transport, which obviously we're all part of the big council far now, is now working together to try and develop a more permanent way of enabling that. And it's entirely a community-led approach. So we don't impose this on streets. It would be very much us creating the process that's required, which would be as simple as it can possibly be while still making sure people understand how to do it safely. You know, like if you have to escort a, a car onto a play street, how do you manage that situation. Well, I like the idea, the idea of uh, having a little journey, being able to do some chalk drawing there for a couple of hours, getting Mm. a sausage sizzle, putting up some bunting, uh, getting a bit of um, Snoop Dogg playing. 
uh, and uh, and having a bit of a street party. I just really love the idea, and uh, hopefully uh, it all goes ahead and um, communities make the most of it, Jackie. Hey, thanks for being with us. No problems at all. My pleasure. Um, and I would love to know: Do you already do you do you do street parties? Text me two one zero one because uh, that is one thing I would love to do this year. Nick Leggett at Julie Woods, you've both been fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you, Wallace. Really Thank cool. you, Wallace. Being fun. Thanks, very Thank cool. You, Nick. Thanks to Ayana, the producer. I am Wallace Chapman. I'm back tomorrow when the horns hit. That's three forty-five for now. Lisa Owen and Checkpoint.